Chapter twenty five part one of the House of the Whispering Pines by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Chapter twenty five part one. I am innocent. All is oblique. There is nothing level in our cursed natures but direct villainy. Therefore be abhorred all feasts, societies, and throngs of men, his semblable, yea, himself, Timon disdains. Timon of Athens I was early in my seat, feeling the momentousness of the occasion, for this day must decide my action for or against the prisoner, I searched the faces of the jury, of the several counsel, and of the judge. I was anxious to know what I had to expect from them, in case my conscience got the better of my devotion to Carmel's interests, and led me into that declaration of the real facts which was forever faltering on my tongue without having as yet received the final impetus which could only end in speech. To give him his rightful precedence, the judge showed an impenetrable countenance, but little change from that with which he had faced us all from the start. He, like most of the men involved in these proceedings, had been a close friend of the prisoner's father, and, in his capacity of judge in this momentous trial, had had to contend with his personal predilections, possibly with concealed sympathies, if not with equally well-concealed prejudices. This had lent to his aspect a sternness never observable in it before, but no man, even the captious Mr. Moffat, had seriously questioned his rulings, and whatever the cost to himself, he had, up to this time, held the scales of justice so evenly that it would have taken an audacious mind to have ventured on an interpretation of his real attitude or mental leaning in this case. From this imposing presence, nobly sustained by a well-proportioned figure, and a head and face indicative of intellect, and every kindly attribute. I turned to gaze upon Mr. Fox and his colleagues. One spirit seemed to animate them, confidence in their case, and unqualified satisfaction at its present status. I was conscious of a certain ironic impulse to smile, as I noted the eager whisper and the bustle of preparation, with which they settled upon their next witness, and prepared to open their batteries upon him. How easily I could call down that high look, and into what a turmoil I could throw them all by an ingenuous demand to be recalled to the stand. But the psychological moment had not yet come, and I subdued the momentary impulse, and proceeded with my scrutiny of the people about me. The jury looked tired, with the exception of one especially alert little man, who drank in even the most uninteresting details with avidity. But they all had good faces, and none could doubt their interest, or that they were fully alive to the significance of the occasion. Mr. Moffat, 
leading counsel for the defendant, was a spare man of unusual height, modified a little, and only a little, by the forward droop of his shoulders. Nervous in manner, quick, short, sometimes rasping in speech, he had the changeful eye and mobile expression of a very sensitive nature, and from him, if from any one, I might hope to learn how much or how little Arthur had to fear from the day's proceedings. But Mr. Moffat's countenance was not as readable as usual. He looked preoccupied, a strange thing for him, and instead of keeping his eye on the witness, as was his habitual practice, he allowed it to wander over the sea of heads before him, with a curious expectant interest which aroused my own curiosity, and led me to hunt about for its cause. My first glance was unproductive. I saw only the usual public, such as had confronted us the whole week, with curious and increasing interest, but as I searched further, I discerned in an inconspicuous corner the bowed head, veiled almost beyond recognition, of Ella Fulton. It was her first appearance in court. Each day I had anticipated her presence, and each day I had failed to see my anticipations realized. But she was here now, and so were her father and her cold and dominating mother, and beholding her thus accompanied, I fancied I understood Mr. Moffat's poorly concealed excitement. But another glance at Mrs. Fulton assured me that I was mistaken in this hasty surmise. No such serious purpose, as I feared, lay back of their presence here to-day. Curiosity alone explained it, and as I realized what this meant, and how little understanding it betokened of the fierce struggle then going on in the timid breast of their distracted child, a sickening sense of my own responsibility drove Carmel's beauty and Carmel's claims temporarily from my mind, and following the direction of Ella's thoughts, if not her glances, I sought in the face of the prisoner a recognition of her presence, if not of the promise this presence brought him. His eye had just fallen on her. I was assured of this by the sudden softening of his expression, the first real softening I had ever seen in it. It was but a momentary flash, but it was unmistakable in its character, as was his speedy return to his former stolidity. Whatever his thoughts were at sight of his little sweetheart, he meant to hide them even from his counsel, most of all from his counsel I decided after a further contemplation of them both. If Mr. Moffat still showed nervousness, it was from some other reason than anxiety about this little body hiding from sight behind the proudly held figures of father and mother. The opening testimony of the day, while not vital, was favourable to the prosecution in that it showed Arthur's conduct since the murder to have been inconsistent with perfect innocence. His belated return at noon the next day, raging against a man who had been found in an incriminating position on the scene of crime, while at the same time failing to betray his own presence there till driven to it by accumulating circumstances and the persistent inquiries of the police, the care he took to avoid drink, 
though constant tippling was habitual to him and formed the great cause of quarrel between himself and the murdered adelaide his haunting of carmel's door and anxious listening for any words she might let fall in her delirium the suspicion which he constantly betrayed of the nurse when for any reason he was led to conclude that she had heard something which he had not his behaviour at the funeral and finally his action in demanded to have the casket lid removed that he might look again in the face he had made no effort to gaze upon when opportunity offered and time and place were seemly these facts and many more were brought forward in grim array against the prisoner with but little opposition from his counsel and small betrayal of feeling on the part of arthur himself his stolid face had remained stolid even when the ring which had fallen out of his sister's casket was shown to the jury and the connection made between its presence there and the intrusion of his hand into the same on the occasion above mentioned this once thoughtless pleasure-loving and hopelessly dissipated boy had not miscalculated his nerve it was sufficient for an ordeal which might have tried the courage and self-possession of the most hardened criminal then came the great event of the day in anticipation of which the court-room had been packed and every heart within it awakened by slow degrees to a state of great nervous expectancy the prosecution rested and the junior counsel for the defence opened his case to the jury if i had hoped for any startling disclosure calculated to establish his client's alleged alibi or otherwise to free the same from the definite charge of murder i had reason to be greatly disappointed by this maiden effort of a young and inexperienced lawyer if not exactly weak there was an unexpected vagueness in his statements which seemed quite out of keeping with the emphatic declaration which he made on the prisoner's innocence even arthur was sensible of the bad effect made by this preliminary address more than once during its delivery and notably at its conclusion he turned to mr moffat with a bitter remark which was not without effect on that gentleman's cheek and at once called forth a retort stinging enough to cause arthur to sink back into his place with the first sign of restlessness i had observed in him moffat is sly moffat has something up his sleeve i will wait till he sees fit to show it was my thought then as i caught a wild and pleading look from ella i added in positive assertion to myself and so must she answering her unspoken appeal with an admonitory shake of the head i carelessly let my fingers rest upon my mouth until i saw that she understood me and was prepared to follow my lead for a little while longer my satisfaction at this was curtailed by the calling of arthur cumberland to the stand to witness in his own defence i had dreaded this contingency i saw that for some reason both his counsel and associate counsel were not without their own misgivings as to the result of their somewhat doubtful experiment a change was observable in this degenerate son of the cumberlands since many there had confronted him face to face physically he was improved 
Enough time had elapsed since his sudden dropping of old habits for him to have risen above its first effects, and to have acquired that tone of personal dignity which follows a successful issue to any moral conflict. But otherwise the difference was such as to arouse doubt as to the real man lurking behind his dogged, uncommunicative manner. Even with the knowledge of his motives which I believed myself to possess, I was at a loss to understand his indifference to self, and the immobility of manner he maintained under all circumstances, and during every fluctuation which took place in the presentation of his case, or in the temper of the people surrounding him. I felt that beyond the one fact that he could be relied upon to protect Carmel's name and Carmel's character, even to the jeopardizing of his case, he was not to be counted on, and might yet startle many of us, and most notably of all, the little woman waiting to hear what he had to say in his own defence before she threw herself into the breach and made that devoted attempt to save him, in his own despite, which had been my terror from the first, and was my terror now. Perjury! But not in his own defence, rather in opposition to it. That is what his counsel had to fear, and I wondered if they knew it. My attention became absorbed in the puzzle. Carmel's fate, if not Ella's, and certainly my own, hung upon the issue. This I knew, and this I faced, calmly, but very surely, as, the preliminary questions having been answered, Mr. Moffat proceeded. The witness's name having been demanded and given and some other preliminary formalities gone through, he was asked, Mr. Cumberland, did you have any quarrel with your sister during the afternoon or evening of December the 2nd? I did. Then, as if not satisfied with this simple statement, he blurted forth, And it wasn't the first. I hated the discipline she imposed upon me, and the disapproval she showed of my ways and the manner in which I chose to spend my money. A straightforward expression of feeling, but hardly a judicious one. Judge Edwards glanced, in some surprise, from Mr. Moffat to the daring man who could choose thus to usher in his defence, and then, forgetting his own emotions, in his indistinctive desire for order, rapped sharply with his gavel in correction of the audible expression of a little feeling on the part of the expectant audience. Mr. Moffat, apparently unaffected by this result of his daring move, pursued his course with the quiet determination of one who sees his goal and is working deliberately towards it. Do you mind particularizing? Of what did she especially disapprove in your conduct or way of spending money? She disapproved of my fondness for drink. She didn't like my late hours or the condition in which I frequently came home. I did not like her expressions of displeasure, or the way she frequently cut me short when I wanted to have a good time with my friends. We never agreed. I made her suffer often and unnecessarily. I regret it now. She was a better sister to me than I could then understand. 
this was uttered slowly and with a quiet emphasis which reawakened that excited hum the judge had been at such pains to quell a moment before but he did not quell it now he seemed to have forgotten his duty in the strong interest called up by these admissions from the tongue of the most imperturbable prisoner he had had before him in years mr moffat with an eye on district attorney fox who had shown his surprise at the trend the examination was taking by a slight indication of uneasiness grateful enough no doubt to the daring counsellor went on with his examination mr cumberland will you tell us when you first felt this change of opinion in regard to your sister mr fox leaped to his feet then he slowly reseated himself evidently he thought it best to let the prisoner have his full say possibly he may have regretted his leniency the next moment when with a solemn lowering of his head arthur answered when i saw my home desolated in one dreadful night with one sister dead in the house the victim of violence and another delirious from fright or some other analogous cause i had ample time to think and i used that time that's all simple words read or repeated but in that crowded courtroom with every ear strained to catch the lie which seemed the only refuge for the man so hemmed in by circumstance these words uttered without the least attempt at effect fell with a force which gave new life to such as wished to see this man acquitted his counsel as if anxious to take advantage of this very expectation to heighten the effect of what followed proceeded immediately to inquire when did you see your sister adelaide for the last time alive a searching question what would be his reply a very quiet one that night at the dinner-table when i left the room i turned to look at her she was not looking at me so i slammed the door and went upstairs in an hour or so i had left the house to get a drink i got the drink but i never saw adelaide again till i saw her in her coffin this blunt denial of the crime for which he stood there arraigned fell on my heart with a weight which showed me how inextinguishable is the hope we cherish deep down under all surface convictions i had been unconscious of this hope but it was there it seemed to die a double death at these words for i believed him courage is needed for a lie there were no signs visible in him as yet of his having drawn upon this last resource of the despairing i should know it when he did he could not hide the subtle change from me to others this declaration came with greater or less force according as it was viewed in the light of a dramatic trick of mr moffat's or as the natural outburst of a man fighting for his life in his own way and with his own weapons i could not catch the eye of ella cowering low in her seat so i could not judge what tender chords had been struck in her sensitive breast by these two assertions so dramatically offset against each other the one his antagonism to the dead the other 
his freedom from the crime in which that antagonism was supposed to have culminated mr moffat satisfied so far put his next question with equal directness mr cumberland you have mentioned seeing your sister in her coffin when was this at the close of her funeral just before she was carried out was that the first and only time you had seen her so placed it was had you seen the casket itself prior to this moment of which you speak i had not had you been near it had you handled it in any way no sir mr cumberland you have heard mention made of a ring worn by your sister in life but missing from her finger after death i have you remember this ring i do is this it it is so far as i can judge at this distance hand the ring to the witness ordered the judge the ring was so handed he glanced at it and said bitterly i recognize it it was her engagement ring was this ring on her finger that night at the dinner-table i cannot say positively but i believe so i should have noticed its absence why may i ask for the first time the prisoner flushed and the look he darted at his counsel had the sting of a reproach in it yet he answered it was the token of an engagement i didn't believe in or like i should have hailed any proof that this engagement was off mr moffat smiled enigmatically mr cumberland if you are not sure of having seen this ring then when did you see it and where a rustle from end to end of that crowded courtroom this was an audacious move what was coming what would be the answer of a man who was believed not only to have made himself a possessor of this ring but to have taken a most strange and uncanny method of disposing of it afterward in the breathless hush which followed this first involuntary expression of feeling arthur's voice rose harsh but steady in this reply i saw it when the police showed it to me and asked me if i could identify it was that the only time you have seen it up to the present moment instinctively the witness's right hand rose it was as if he were mentally repeating his oath before he uttered coldly and with emphasis though without any show of emotion it is the universal silence gave way to a universal sigh of excitement and relief district attorney fox's lips curled with an imperceptible smile of disdain which might have impressed the jury if they had been looking his way but they were all looking with eager and interested eyes at the prisoner who had just uttered his second distinct and unequivocal denial End of chapter 25 part 1